Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, having my recording sabotaged by the cicadas outside my window. <laughs> sabotaged by the changing of the seasons, aren't we all? <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana, and I don't have a fun fact this week, but I just... I can't believe I've never told Matt this, but this week Matt learned uh, from me very, very belatedly that he and I are the face of Russian study abroads for the UC school system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because um, uh, when I, I used to work in the UC Davis study abroad office, and obviously I was the first person to go to, to through our, the program we did to Russia in so many years that they didn't have it on the website and they forgot that it was one of our programs apparently. Um, and so when I came back, they asked me if they could use a picture that I took there for something. And I said, sure. And many months later, when I was helping a student on that webpage, I found out that a picture of Matt and I on the UCEAP webpage, <laughs> we, we are the front figures for study abroad in Russia for the entirety of the UC school system. It's us and it's a stock photo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for clarification, I didn't, I didn't go to a UC school. <laughs> <laughs> so you're welcome california <laughs> matt who has you have you been to california i assume you have at some point one time and i almost died but we have to say that for a bonus episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um and also we just both look very i don't know what it, there's there's a very weird vibe we're both giving off in that photo hostage i don't know what it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah not wrong anyways this is a podcast where me and my good pal cameron get to unwind from our week with some russian literature and a drink or two this week we're continuing our summer of anna karenina series with part seven or dare i say the karenining i came up with that before recording and i <laughs> had to had to get it in there this week we are eternally grateful to cole our newest patron on patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy thank you so much cole and uh for the other listeners if you're interested in supporting us on patreon and you've enjoyed the series so far and you like what we do go ahead and take a look we have a lot of really fun patreon only things like bonus episodes one set to drop pretty soon notes on each story we read and just in general it's the most helpful thing you can do to keep the show running if you're not interested in patreon but would prefer to support us in a more free way you can leave a nice review on apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website yes thank you for the updates but before we get into the reading today matt what are you drinking? I am drinking a bourbon tonight called Contradiction. Ooh. And that is because it had an elephant on the label. And I thought he looked cute. And I just feel just so bloated <laughs> from all the beer I've been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Yeah, that's fair. Um, I today have a selection from Trader Joe's because I'm a man of the people. Yes, sure. Uh, this is the Bosun Double IPA, a twin screw steamer. I don't know which part of that was the title, and I don't know which part of that is the classification. I refuse to respond. <laughs> <laughs> this thing uh, is $5 for a six-pack. Uh, and if you don't mind, I see IPAs that are a little bit rough. It's really good. Uh, and usually <laughs> I hate IPAs, so that's a pretty big compliment. Okay, okay. Well, I'll have to give it a try for five bucks. Yeah. You cannot beat that at Trader's. You literally can't. I hate that you call it traitors, but we already covered that. Well, well, this week, part seven of Anna Karenina. Um, 
uh, a deceptively eventful part of Anna Karenina. You really don't you <laughs> really don't see the ending when you from the well, I will say first seventy to eighty pages of this, even though we all know it's coming. I really staked my claim that part six was the most important, and then I really forgot what was coming in part seven, which I shouldn't have because I've read this less than a year ago. <laughs> You've read this multiple times. This is your third read-through, I think, right? Yeah, but I can't keep to parts straight, like what happens and what part, because, you know, the, yeah. my guy loses me with the farming halfway through every time. <laughs> <laughs> you just get so into it, you forget that there's anything else of import in this book. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's my favorite part. It's the farming, so. <laughs> yeah, as it Anyways. should be for all of us. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> uh, we open up part seven with another extended Levin scene. We get to see Levin in so many different environments. It's always good. Now we're seeing Levin as Levin and Kitty cohabitate now in Moscow while they wait for Kitty to give birth over the course of some number of months. So the, ma the majority of the, of the first half... Of part seven is just us following one of Levin's days. <laughs> um, Levin is not feeling great hanging out in in Moscow for so long, and Kitty understands how anxious he she he is, and it's something that kind of rubs her the wrong way. We open up with them discussing Levin's day. He's got a lot to do. They go over the fact that he has to go visit some people. He's got to go see. Um, Kitty's eldest sister, Natalie's husband, uh, Lvov, or I forget his first name. He's he's only referred to by Lvov. Uh, he's got to go see a play with uh, Natalie later in the day. Kitty really wants him to go see uh, a mutual friend of theirs who he's never met before, but she insists that she really has to do it. Levin uh, also is going to meet a sociologist, Metrov, who he met through a friend of his, uh, Karavasov. He's got a day chock full of stuff, and he assures her, "Hey, I'm gonna be back before, I'm gonna be back before dinner. Uh, I'll I'll get your dad when he's at the club, you know, the club everyone goes to, all, all the men, I mean, go to, and I'll be back. We'll we'll have a good evening together." And she says, "Okay, sure," and he leaves. And then we spend so long detailing his the <laughs> detailing his day <laughs> one to the next. He meets up with with Katasov and Metrov, and initially. They, they, they are introduced because Katasov really is intrigued by Levin's book on, uh, on agriculture and the need to understand Russian laborers, not merely from the polit economy, political economy perspective of, you know, person and wage, but also in their environment. Metrov is also kind of as a sociologist writing on this, but he is a very strict political economist as the 19th century would have understood it. So as soon as Levin starts expounding on his ideas, Metrov immediately just gets into how much he does not agree and goes off on a tangent and and Levin feeling stupid immediately shuts up and and does not even engage for the rest of the time they're together. King. <laughs> Don't back up your argument, just dissociate. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was a valid that was a valid way to defend a thesis. Tolstoy's saying it is, I think. I think that's what he's saying here. Certainly. Can't be anything else. I, I yeah, I think I think you're right on the right path with that one. So Levin, he, he does give some ground to Metrov. He still agrees with him, but he, he kind of comes to the conclusion that there is nothing to be gained from interaction between someone like Metrov, a political economist, and me. Um, uh, well, I don't know how to define Levin, but we can't learn things from each other. We have to develop on different paths altogether. 
I don't know if that's necessarily the lesson you should take away from that, but that is the lesson he does. Uh, <laughs> and he he leaves that to go do something altogether more relaxing, going to visit Lvov, the, the husband of Kitty's eldest sister, Natalie. Ah, you fool. You thought there was only two. No, you forget there was a third. <laughs> <laughs> you forget that Natalie was the one that he was originally, Levin was originally in love with before she got married and then Dolly got married and Oops. then he married the suspiciously, with, married the youngest one with a suspicious age gap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Um, so he really enjoys Lvov's company. They just seem to understand each other. They're just, they're just some bros, just bros doing dude things. They, they sit there, they trade compliments about uh, Lvov's sons. Uh, who Lavov insists are, you know, only, you know, they're perfect, but they're, you know, they could be improved. And Levin tells him, you know, I wish I could have sons like yours. And then Natalie joins the conversation and we start getting into a discussion of what does it mean to raise kids? And they kind of talk about how in their day, the kids were put in the attic while the parents did whatever they wanted. And now it's gone to the other extreme where the parents go to the attic while the kids do whatever they want, which are, of course, the only two ways to raise kids. Uh, yeah, don't you hate that? <laughs> kids huh yeah <laughs> just you just hate it natalie disagrees and she says that you know we shouldn't go to such extremes but in fact her the way she lives is at one of those extremes so just some just some kid kid raising discourse as we love to have <laughs> some pl plenty of good parenting <laughs> tips in this book <laughs> um Levin, especially the the fact that the only important type of moral lesson is or the only important type of lesson for your kids is the moral lesson, and then everything else follows naturally after that. Uh, Levin, after that, goes with Natalie to go see a, a variant on King Lear, a sort of modern Russian piece of art, which Levin does not like. He, the fact that other people do like it really perplexes him. And later on, when he's discussing it with someone else, he finds himself basically saying things which he's heard he's heard being passed around, kind of intellectually lazily they're all saying the same things in a circle to each other about this sort of thing and speaking of intellectual laziness he then decides to go to a club to meet with the prince with kitty's father uh which is where i guess the kind of the cream so to speak of petersburg's sorry of moscow society go to hang where they just go eat drink play cards read books everyone of importance all, all the men of importance in this novel are there um steva vronsky the prince other people who just runs into and although it should be awkward the fact that um, Levin and Vronsky are both there uh, at this point uh, Levin who has had quite a bit to drink when he finally meets Vronsky after he's been at the club at some time finds himself actually getting along with the man and, and actually quite liking him so they, they keep on going about this well, well, this relatively pleasant interaction. They start playing cards. Uh, Levin loses 40 rubles in this process, which actually I should point out is important uh, because Levin in earlier chapters was very concerned about money, uh, about every single kopeck that he spends. But after spending time, so much time in Moscow, he's begun to think less carefully about money. Uh, at first, when he spent 100 rubles, I had to change the 100 ruble bill to pay a bill it hurt him and the second time it got a little bit easier and the third time it's it's practically nothing at all and now he thinks nothing about paying you know 20 rubles just to go half <laughs> just to go half half a mile down the street in order to get somewhere by plow so the leaven who we cannot imagine spending 40 rubles on a card game in one afternoon is now just throwing out money like crazy and that also means that his financial straits are not as good as they once were he's basically spent all of his savings <laughs> in like the last couple of months but even then, that's not even really concerning him all that much. 
he's he's thinking he's gonna find a way it's not something that's at the front of his mind as leaven of prior eras would have um and steva while they're playing cards suddenly proposes that they go see anna against um his better judgment i guess you could say leaven decides yeah let's go see anna what are the agent of chaos too you know <laughs> <laughs> like what how do you propose the exact worst thing in the world to do in every moment well first of all how do you 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 see you're like one of your closest friends and then you see the man who his wife almost married and you're like hey what if we all played cards together and while you're already playing cards together with that group you say hey let's go see the most <laughs> uh socially isolated woman in the entirety of our city right now uh let's real powder keg take us there cameron how does it go <laughs> <laughs> it goes surprisingly well actually well well levin's there at least when he arrives, he sees the portrait that Mikhailov painted of Anna, and he is enraptured. This is a beautiful portrait, and when he turns around to see Anna in real life, it's not as grand, but she's got a vitality and, and personality and just a, a presence that makes her even more beautiful than the portrait is. They begin to talk, and Levin's really blown away by how much Anna is very natural. They seem to have a, a good flow. She's never awkward. They're always finding new things to talk about. Um, he's impressed the way that uh, um, the the trainer for uh, Vronsky's horse is kind of a drunk, so Anna's kind of taken his kids under her wing. Um, so she supports not only her own daughter, Anna, but also this uh, the daughter of the, of the Englishman known as the English girl, only as the English girl. And, and they have actually a pretty good time, and, and Levin's really impressed with Anna. Levin decide, and Levin goes home feeling great about this endeavor, being like, "Wow, why, how could anyone have hated Anna? I love Anna. This is this is awesome." Talk about like the man who is like perhaps the worst judge of character. <laughs> like, it's it's hard to beat that. I mean, given that he's still like Steve's best friend, uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think I would agree. Yeah. So he returns home, and this says, as you might imagine, has gone way past when he was supposed to return. He was supposed to be back for dinner. He did not come back for dinner. In fact, he's come home very late in the evening. And Kitty is kind of sitting there like, hey, dude, what's up? You missed dinner. And also, I've been waiting for you for hours. And Eleven recounts his day. He goes over all the, all the features, the gambling, the fact that as I also he goes to meet the people who uh, Kitty uh, asked him to. But it's of so little consequence that it completely slipped my mind to mention that it's like a three pages of Tim feeling awkward before he leaves. And they are never mentioned again. Oops. Uh, he admits to her that not yeah, not only has he not talked to to um, Steva as he was supposed to about um, getting Steva's family out of financial straits because he's driven them into the ground, he instead went with Steva to go see <laughs> go see the woman who is kind of common law married to the man that stilted Kitty. Uh, and in that moment, he realizes that was probably not my best call of the day of all the things I did that were not the best call. That was probably the worst one. If there was a record scratch moment inside of Levin's head at any point in this book, it was probably right here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it says that Levin, who up, the, up to this point, has wondered whether or not this is the right thing to do, finally decides that, in fact, yes, this was the wrong thing to do. So good timing on that one. That's because he is irreparably dense. <laughs> yeah so kitty's jealous they have an argument that's a very unsurprising series of events i will say following this we return back to uh anna's perspective anna's walking around her house she's alone vronsky isn't home yet and she's thinking about 
how much she has captured the attention of Levin. And we find out now from her perspective that she, she knows the effect she had on Levin. And in fact, was uh, went out to that meeting with the intention of creating that effect in him. And this has all been a very calculated thing for her. We, we find out that uh, this is not quite a not not quite a feel well if this is already not a feel good moment it was already uh, kind of a feel bad moment for a number of reasons but now we, we go we, we now understand that this was not even just a genuine heart to heart this was something that was kind of cynically engineered to a certain degree by Anna as soon as uh, Vronsky gets home she they launch into an argument as we kind of come to realize this is becoming more and more frequent where Vronsky is staying away from home more and more often and Anna is feeling more and more isolated because Vronsky one time she at one point she thought all she needed was Vronsky's love and it turns out that um well she probably needs more than that first of all but secondarily she's not even getting his love anymore because he's just hanging out all day at the clubs with his buds you know playing cards um so she is feeling not great we'll say to say the least. To say the least, yeah. We then we then come to one of the important moments in this book, when Levin wakes up one morning to find Kitty just sitting there, and she kind of says, and she says to him, "Kostya, don't be frightened. It's all right. But I think we sent ought to send for Lizaveta Petrovna, who's the midwife, um, meaning that she is thinking she's going to give birth soon." And Levin freaks out. And he runs to go get the doctor, who's still asleep, and he then runs to go get some... Is it opium that he gets? Yep. Yeah, he runs to go get opium, which um, is the number one thing you do want to give to a woman in labor. Mm-hmm. Um, I am actually not a doctor. Maybe that is helpful. <laughs> People who have taken opium while giving birth, let us know. Is that <laughs> is that of use? Uh, <laughs> um, it's just it's one big cavalcade we we he basically goes into kind of a fugue state for the full 22 hours that kitty's giving birth and he's he's worrying and he gathers everyone and he doesn't even know where he is from one moment to the next it's it's a lot he's very very out of it he's kind of chastising himself for inflicting this upon kitty <laughs> the pain that she's in uh which continues until finally she gives birth uh, which is a very happy moment until the midwife cleans up and swallows the baby and gives it to him. And then he looks down at his son, who has caused him so much suffering and heartache and, and so many emotions in the last 22 hours. And he thinks, wow, this is an ugly kid. And he feels yeah, nothing the, but revulsion for The him. guy doesn't even like the kid. <laughs> I, I have to imagine this is just something that Tolstoy went through in his own life. Like with I'm pretty one sure of his is. kids or maybe all of them. But yeah, he's looking at this kid. He's just like, this is an ugly, revol- a repulsive thing. Um, and then he hands it over to, to Kitty, who is significantly more uh, positive on, on their son. <laughs> we don't entirely leave it there. He, he does, the kid, when he does hand it to uh, Kitty, does sneeze. And he, he does feel what is described as a sense of, a, a strange thrill of senseless joy and even pride that uh, he, he felt when the baby sneezed, which... You do you, man, I guess. Find find, find uh, pride in your kids in whatever way you can. I love this kid. He's the number one sneezer. <laughs> <laughs> like father, like son. <laughs> we now join, for the first time for an extended period, Steva, who is actually in a bad way for once. He has spent 
all the money from selling that forest earlier in the book. He's even spent some of the advance the guy gave him. Uh, Dolly won't give him, sign him over any more land because she wants him to stop selling her land and then spending it all on drink and affairs, which is fair. Steve? It's hard to believe. <laughs> I know. Um, so he kind of is coming to the conclusion that, oh, he's just going to have to get a new job. It's going to suck, but he's got to do it. Uh, so he does the very hard work of going to St. Petersburg to go see Karenin to kind of try to get a better government position, which he can work without giving up his old position to earn about, was it 10, 12,000 more rubles? It doesn't matter. He's going to spend He's going to spend it anyways. Yeah, exactly. I, he points out that the job he holds right now is only enough to pay for his household expenses, which, holy God, I, if that's the household expenses alone, not even counting his just tendency towards buying anything that that pleases him i can't even imagine how much his household must cost um he goes to karenin and tries to get him to put in a good word with some people uh karenin is not down for it and the moment he hears that steva is doing this for a higher wage goes off on government positions getting high wages yada 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 anyway it's kind of a bust so coming off of this incredibly successful uh, attempt at getting a new job Steva then decides this is the perfect moment to bring up uh, the fact that uh, Karenin really should divorce his sister, which makes Karenin even angrier. <laughs> um, and Steva does this weird thing where he keeps trying to like calm him down by putting his hand on, 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 on Karenin's hand or putting his hand on Karenin's knee to calm him down, which I don't think this is intended to be. I don't think he was trying to seduce his brother-in-law, but I'm just saying it's not. Unless. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been. You know, times change, norms change, uh, still, I don't know, it's a little bit weird, just putting your, like, tenderly caressing your brother-in-law's knee, trying to get him to calm down. <laughs> could have been, could have been, could have been could a have been. Could have been. seduction. Basically, Karenin tells him, come back later, I'll invite you back, we'll, we'll see about that. And Steve goes on about his day, thinks about how good he feels in St. Petersburg, how it revitalizes him, and, you know, in Moscow, sometimes he... Uh, shockingly feels so tired that he doesn't even enjoy the company of young women, if you can believe it. And he, that's not a problem he has at all in St. Petersburg. Not for a single moment does he think, I won't shoot at my wife today <laughs> in this revitalizing city. This enjoyment is, is interrupted by, by being in, invited back to Karenin's house. And he now rejoins Karenin, Countess Ivanovna, and a psychic, a French psychic, who is there to give him, basically is, is there to get guidance on what he should do. And he, Steva, Ivanovna, and Karenin have a very, very awkward conversation about religion. Where basically all you need to know is that Steva, the ultimate, <laughs> ultimate agnostic, is trying to get along with the two of them. And uh, Ivanovna and Alexei are now very, very hardline literalist Christians. <laughs> that is guiding everything they do. Uh, and that keeps going on until the Frenchman falls asleep and begins to give his very uh, indirect uh, prediction, which ends up being... Uh, Karenin is not going to divorce his wife, essentially. It's it's amazing that Tolstoy can make you side side with Steva in an argument about religion. You know? <laughs> it's truly the work of a, a master writer that we can walk away after everything else Steva has done in the last three pages and think, wow, I feel I've been in Steva's shoes. That sucks for him. <laughs> yeah, but very... <laughs> At one point, he... He even says he tries to make a light jest of, um, you know, what is what is faith that works? And then uh, Alexei and Ivanovna both go off on him for believing that, um, about how that's not really scriptural, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Got him. Got him. What harm has been done by the false interpretation of that passage, Alexi says. Nothing holds men back from belief like that misinterpretation. I have no words, so I cannot believe. Yet that is not said anywhere. It's just the opposite, he says to him. in just the awkwardest conversation while they wait for a psychic to fall asleep to figure out whether or not he should divorce his wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really not funny, but it's a little funny. It's, a, it's not supposed to be funny. We're supposed to be seeing a, a, an Alexi Karenin who has been... The empathy which he showed, which I think is his apex early on when Anna is dying, is now has been thoroughly driven out of him by the influence of hardline Christianity and uh, Countess Ivanovna, although that's kind of one of the same with the hardline Christianity thing. Yeah, this is a low point in the story for basically everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of low points, we now rejoin Anna and Vronsky, mostly Anna, as she's walking around thinking about her life, and it's not going well. Every single time Anna and Vronsky get together, they just end up arguing. Even when they both kind of know that they're about to head into an argument and they want to pull back because they want to show the other they love them, they can't. They just keep walking back into it and they keep making it worse. And it gets to the point where Anna feels like it's just things can't get better from here. And she decides, I'm going to kill myself. I, I, there's nothing left for me. I gave up my love of my son for the love of a man who's clearly doesn't love me anymore. He must be falling in love with other women. He loves me less than he used to. Where is he turning that love to? His mother is trying to get him to marry Princess uh, Sorokina, and he's going to go visit his mother next Monday, and he won't go with me to the countryside on Monday, so maybe he is going to marry Sorokina. And it just makes every argument worse and worse, and they keep almost making up, then breaking off into a worse argument, which continues for 30 pages until finally just Vronsky decides, I've had enough, I can't do this anymore, and he just leaves, and Anna sitting there hoping that he'll come back and decide, you know what, you know, Anna, I do love you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Let's make up. But Vronsky doesn't. So she decides to go somewhere. It doesn't really matter. She's going into the train station, and she, she goes to visit Dolly, intending to fall upon Dolly and apologize to her and, and confess to her that her life is, is horrid, everything is bad, and, and she doesn't know what to do. When she gets there, however, she decides Dolly is kind of speaking with her and... and admits to her that Kitty's there but won't see Anna and Anna says no 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 that's is something wrong have her come out to me and Kitty reluctantly at Dolly's behest decides to, to come visit her or at least just say hi essentially um, and they have a weird weird moment where Kitty looks into Anna and thinks that she should have antagonism to this woman and, and there should be a conflict between how much she hates her and she just has like a desire to be nice to people but when she sees Anna, uh, all those feelings just disappear. And like everyone else who meets Anna, she just kind of falls in love. And, and they speak. They speak of, of Kitty's... Uh, she's currently kind of ill, uh, recuperating from the birth of her son. Uh, they talk about her son. They talk about Steva. But this nothing is interesting to Anna. So she says, you know, I came to say goodbye. I'm very glad I've seen you. Um, you know, I heard everyone likes you. And uh, I like, you know, I like you and I like your husband too. Uh, and you know, remember me to him. I love how they set off the alarm to nobody. Yeah, I know. She was like, I'm saying goodbye. And Dolly's <laughs> like, to where are you going? And she doesn't answer. And Dolly's like, okay. <laughs> it's weird that you keep saying goodbye to me before you like, before you look at like you want to say something before before saying goodbye again. And, and are like, yeah, I'll never see you again. Unbelievably bad friend. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So following that, 
she goes to get on the train, caring not where she goes, and, and surrounded by people having inane conversations, which only bothers her. By the time the train gets to the next stop, she decides there's only one thing to be done, and lets the train start to leave without her, and as the train takes off, she throws herself under the wheels. And part seven ends on this line. In the light of the candle by which she had read the book, filled with troubles, falsehoods, sorrow and evil flared up more brightly than ever before, lighted up for her all that had been shrouded in darkness, flickered, began to grow dim, and was quenched forever. Part seven. Part seven. That's not the end of the book. You, you might think this is where the book ends, right? This is where all the movies end. Oh, you might think. Oh, we have more wheat. We have more, more wheat to plow. <laughs> like every other part, the first half is deceptive because so little things, so little of real import, although in another way, so many things of great import happen, um, <laughs> that you wouldn't think this is the part where um, <clears throat> the, an entire plot line of this novel just ends. Yeah. Surprise. Yeah. So... Matt, if you, you didn't have, know already. you've had a lot of thought. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, spoiler alert. Anna dies. Uh, Matt, you've had a lot of thoughts about this part. I do, of course. I know you're always surprised when you get here, but there's a lot going on here. So, starting with Levin's Day Out, Levin's Day and the Town, Levin's Day and the Prowl, whenever you prefer. I like none of those. Um, <laughs> he kind of like it's, it's my view. This is how I understand a lot of Tolstoy. This is just a lot of examples of the same thing over and over and over and over. His agricultural book that he set out to write, he wants to write the definitive book on agriculture. Well, there is no definitive book that can be written on agriculture because you can't really understand humans as a whole. Uh, and that's kind of what he's coming to in this argument with these two other people. Uh, he's really just, he's arguing against this kind of rationalist understanding of development, of farming, of literally anything you can think of and Levin saying no human cultural factors these are all what are really important uh, a humanities boy after my own heart here uh and it later <laughs> notes are actually a really fair critique of of political economy of this time saying that well rents and capital don't exist in most parts of russia at this point in time like they do in western europe so you're applying a theory that doesn't even really work here uh so it's kind of the conclusion or will, what will lead to the conclusion of him here and question that I, I pose to myself because this is actually an important part i think kind of sort of uh how does levin's formulation of his farming theories actually relate to his formulation of an ethical theory and they're very much connected i think i, I think that he's kind mm. of saying that at the heart of everything there is some humanness to it that is difficult to understand on a like total totalizing basis. And so the same reasons that you can't say just, okay, implement this technology, you'll have a successful farm. That's the same exact reason that you can't say, okay, just do these things and you'll have a successful marriage. Everything is different than it will be for someone else. And that's kind of how I think Tolstoy is combining farming and basically all aspects of life. Um, I might be, it might, right. might sound like kind of a stretch, but I don't know. That's kind of what I've, feel about it yeah that's fair i think it's interesting that when he, he comes he, he clearly disagrees and tolstoy clearly disagrees at this point that mitrov is trying to make but he, he despite his disagreement he never really kind of comes to the point where he's like well mitrov is wrong he's just kind of saying well I, I don't think he can fully apply his theories which may be correct in other environments here and what he says is we need to start 
we need to like develop our theories in our own parallels because we can't learn from each other. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that it leaves room for Metrov to be right in a certain area in, right. in, you know, right. in his own way. And maybe if he goes along far enough, he'll develop the correct theory, but it just will not be, it's just his theories will never be compatible in meaningful in relation to Levin's ideas and, and Tolstoy's ideas, really. Sure. Sure. And it's, it's basically the same thing at the concert where Levin is just absolutely insufferable to everybody around him uh, talking about why he does <laughs> why he doesn't like it uh, because he says that uh, Wagner and all of his followers are trying to take music into into the sphere of another art and same thing happens with poetry it goes wrong when it tries to paint a face just what he's saying is that theories don't need to be complex theories should be simple uh, the simpler something is the better the explanation or the theory is uh, just for simplicity's sake, basically. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the gist of the, the first part, I feel like. That's like Levin's mm -hmm. own personal spiritual journey, like his self-contained journey. And then it splits into Deanna stuff. But that's, I mean, that's kind of what like most of this book is for Levin. To me, it seems like a lot of this very similar things happening over and over for him to test basically these different theories out and see what he can come up with and he's finally starting to get closer mm. to his truth well i think it's interesting you can almost look at it as like different rings and that okay first he begins with the laborer working among the laborers developing those ideas then he kind of works the edges into a finer point by working with other noblemen of his own class and then finally he's trying to bring it to the intelligentsia of moscow and now uh, you know, at this point, this kind of searching has been, I, I would say he's had his most certainty here. And in any other place, he's always, been, he's always been certain, of course, but people have kind of come back to him and he's gotten involved in arguments. But I think it's notable in this one that he is not interested in arguing for the most part. He, when someone starts saying something contrary to him, he just kind of begins to shut up and says to himself, okay, well, they clearly don't understand. I don't feel any need for myself to justify my ideas to them. Yeah. But then everything changes with Steva and Levin's visit to Anna's. Well, we've already covered that Levin's a bad judge of character, right? Yeah. So, well, I think this is interesting. Actually, Levin falls for the same exact thing in Steva, basically, that he does in Anna. Well, kind of. Well, that's actually probably not really true. But I just think it's interesting that Tolstoy <laughs> kind of wrote these family characters that have, like, the same kind of magnetism. And Levin so clearly falls under that with both of them here. More so, I guess, with... Anna. I mean, Anna's basically just trying to seduce him for like, I don't know, 20 pages, however long he's there. Yep. Levin is checking Anna out. She's enjoying it. But then Levin also does notice that like something's like a little off, but he's too dense for that to actually register for him, I think. I, I have a quote when Anna's leaning over and talking to Steve about something else. Uh, she says, the narrator says, her face so beautiful a moment before in its repose suddenly wore a look of strange curiosity, anger, and pride. And so this only lasts a second, but you can tell like there's something a little bit weird with her going on. And mm -hmm. yeah, but he, at the same time, like, so he notices something's a little bit weird, but at the same time, he's just enjoying the attention that he's getting from Anna. And she's, very clearly won him over. Everybody realizes that. Steve realizes it. Anna realizes it, uh, mm -hmm. which is why she later, I think, goes to Kitty and Dolly, potentially. I guess, I mean, we can jump to that if you want. 
Yeah, please. It kind of, that's why I had to like separate it because I feel like these parts actually all really lead to each other in that. So when she goes to say goodbye to Dolly and she knows Kitty's there, I'm pretty sure. And <laughs> the thing she says to, to Kitty is, yes, I'm very glad to have seen you. She said with a smile, I've heard so much of you from everyone, even from your husband. He came to see me and I liked him very much. Uh, the narrator says she said with unmistakably, she said unmistakably with malicious intent. <laughs> Like, that wasn't like a, that wasn't like, um, oh yes, I know who you are. That was, a, I think that was a malicious jab, but yeah. I think you have to understand where Anne is coming from. And this is where a really interesting thing happens in my mind. And this is something that was pointed out to me by a very smart professor, uh, when she was talking about differences between Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and she was posing the question, are they Actually, do they have more similarities than we think? And everybody likes to pose them as some sort of dichotomy and whatnot. But everyone seems to also forget about the end of Anna Karenina. This is a really dark ending to this to this uh, part. Not just the suicide, but everything that leads to it. And how she ends, like her mental state right before killing herself is bad. Like, very evil in a very sort of way. Um, she does a really pretty lengthy internal monologue uh just very hateful everyone is hateful Mm -hmm. uh she comes to the conclusion that basically everyone is trying to take her shirt off her back and she's trying to take everyone else's shirt off everyone else's back like that's that's the truth that's her truth that she lands on and it's a much different truth than levin and so in a way i guess i don't know if i have the answer to this question i thought i would pose it since there are a lot of interested Dostoevsky listeners I know um obviously Dostoevsky writes about sections of society that Tolstoy does not but do they deal with similar questions of morality and evil I think so and I think this ending is a pretty significant one that I don't know Dostoevsky has a lot of Mm. or can in parts have hope redemption there is no hope or redemption here for Anna at all in her mind by the end of this so I don't know where that leaves you, but it always leaves me feeling bad after I read it. I think to your to your point about the com- parallels between Anna and Levin being, although I think Dostoevsky, Tolstoy very much intended for it to be a dichotomy. This is kind of a morality tale that if you do pursue what what Anna does, you will come to this kind of end. You're going to end with with thinking the world's evil and there's nothing it can give you. Um, and all, um, you know, you're going to have a bad end versus Levin, who doesn't always have an easy time of things. And certainly <laughs> Tolstoy would be no stranger to that, but ultimately he does have a more hopeful ending. But I, I, I think the problem for Tolstoy in trying to tell this morality tale is that he was too good at providing a good look into Anna's mind because you walk away from this, not as it, it doesn't feel like a, even though it's very clearly supposed to be. Uh, like a condemning tale you feel sadness more so for anna like in the same way that in the lady and the dog i think that oh god who wrote that check up check up in the same way that it's been commented that that Chekhov is trying to write a better ending for anna in the lady and the dog you see very much i i think when you when you can walk away from this sympathizing with anna to that extent even though when she is trying to lash out when she's trying to to kind of hurt the people around her 
like you said, she says that malicious, she says, you know, remember me, it's your husband, essentially as a jab to Kitty. Kitty looks back to her and says, yeah, I will, naively. The, the, it says, she says it naively, like she doesn't get that she's being attacked. And, and no one understands Anna. And I think that that is supposed to be, like, that is supposed to be something that, that is condemning about her because she has made so many choices which separate her so much from everyone else that she's become so alienated and that's a bad thing. But the, the thing is that sometimes I, I think everyone has, I think people can easily relate to a feeling of alienation like the people around them don't understand them. And he did such a good job of writing to her into this corner that you feel more so sympathy like it is the fact, like obviously she's not a perfect person. No one in this novel is. Uh, no one's a perfect person, and you can't get away from the feeling that she doesn't deserve it. Uh, you know, because everyone in this novel does bad things, but for her, it's specifically she was unlucky enough that her decisions took her into the spiral, whereas other people had certain characteristics, which although they share her features to a great deal, to a great deal, they are able to escape. I mean, when you're when we're when we follow her uh, fighting with Vronsky, it, like the, the, the loss of love, it, I think her jealousy is, is posed as a bad thing and that it is, it is detrimental. Um, but it, it's, you, that's another parallel you can look to between Levin and Kitty and Anna and Vronsky, whereas Levin is someone who has, is full of jealousy, but because Kitty is, is essentially proves him wrong and he's able to struggle around to being less jealous although that's still something he struggles with it's portrayed as something that's obviously bad um anna she's jealous and it's portrayed as bad but she's not entirely wrong per se i, I mean it, he points at many points that that when she feels that Vronsky loves her less he does he does feel like he has made the wrong decision and he's trying to escape her more and more and 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 their constant fights make him more and more estranged from her her, her understanding is is obviously driving this tendency, but it's not wrong in the way she's looking at it, um, in the way that it, in the same way that you still see that same problems for Levin, but he he was in fact wrong, and that's kind of what pulls him out of it. Yeah, it's still a question that I haven't been able to totally reconcile myself while reading. Why does Anna not get a happy ending, but Levin does? Like, mm. I know why Tolstoy wrote it. It was with the intention of showing, I think that if you do something bad then something bad happens to you and it's just kind of simple as that or so he says i think later in life i mean not that simply but yeah you get the gist i just mm -hmm. don't really agree with <laughs> with that um i think the epigraph to the novel is still very interesting here vengeance is mine i will repay well who is repaying is God repaying? Is Tolstoy repaying? Because it really seems mostly like Tolstoy is repaying uh, in in, <laughs> in this novel, of course. And yeah, like you said, it's 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 pretty tough, I think, not to sympathize with Anna's predicament, especially at the very end, right before, or I guess during her jumping under the train, where her last feeling is regret. I don't know how you can't sympathize with her. Well, at, in multiple places, but definitely there. That's what, that's what I think where the that's what I think the basic problem for Tolstoy is is that he's trying to write a morality tale, but he is someone who is too good at portraying character motivations. Uh, and that if you wanted to write a better morality tale, you'd write uh, for this era, you'd write, okay, this is a fallen woman, she's bad, whatever. But Tolstoy can't help but not want to engage with that psychology, it seems, and just work through it. And the more he works through it, the more you empathize with someone as a human being going through a very complex and understandable set of emotions. 
so he's trying to basically other her as like a lesson, but you can't look at her as anything else other than what she is, which is in a very compelling, a very charismatic, and a very imperfect person, which is a very, I think, interesting and compelling thing. I mean, that's why that's why Levin's interesting, because he's, uh, well, I wouldn't say he's compelling exactly, but he's very imperfect, but he's really, really self-aware in a way that's pretty rare in literature, and that's what drives them on, is we got one character who is compelling and, and frankly, not all that self-aware, and we've got one character who is not all that compelling, but is driven by that self-awareness, so they're it's like it's like you're seeing the same life lived out by two people who are not altogether different. I mean, Levin's he's, he's a handsome, fit guy, um, which is not not as comparable to Anna's beauty. People instantly fall in love with her, but their features are are really really comparable. But it's really I think the fact that he has a, an ability to self reflect, which Anna does not have, um, kind of leads them very much down very very different paths, despite their the the immense number of parallels in their lives. I didn't even talk about the plot lines. <laughs> you mentioned it for me. I just wanted to point out briefly, it took seven parts for Tolstoy to make his two protagonists connect. And almost all the way through the seventh. Right? Am I right? Did I miss something? You're right. No, no that's, that's yeah. like 840 pages in, 830 pages in. Yeah, like... <laughs> woo. <laughs> Sorry, no, like 780, but still yeah. far in. Yeah. I don't have something super smart to say on this point just that you know it's interesting isn't it <laughs> i mean yeah I, there's as much as i sometimes want to clown on just spending 60 pages talking through the details of levin's day including the details that levin himself don't think matter like meeting uh counting countess bowl <laughs> at their home which where he does not want to be he's only there at the behest of kitty he makes some awkward small talk and then he leaves <laughs> it truly didn't need to happen and yet it's there um, and I, I think that that's something that is really dr has drawn me to this novel, uh, because we're really just walk watching two lives. We're, 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 I mean, we're watching many lives in parallel, but you know, each of these stories is so much less interesting without the other to contrast it. I mean, Anna's life is just one of continuous drama and I see why it's the one that's adapted, but I, it, it loses so much of its meaning in, in its drama when it's not uh contrasted against levin's frankly pretty boring life yeah i know i agree that's why i will continue to dislike joe wright's adaptation but that's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just me we d we demand the levin cut where we only have i want the levin cut the version of anna karenina only focusing on levin scenes i yes i would like that <laughs> or i would just like like an eight-hour movie. Like that old Soviet War and Peace yeah. where they just... <laughs> yeah. Like the War and Peace, exactly. It's it's a shame the Soviet Union didn't make a... Like a like their version of Anna Karenina didn't go the full nine miles because if any if that... what That eight-hour War and Peace, which is so expensive that it literally could never be recreated because of the combined value of putting the Red Army up to it and taking all this stuff they had out of museums and these original buildings... They 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 just they had they had the capital the human capital they had the 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 relics that could have gone into making a truly uh, incredible film, but uh, and they had someone who greenlit an eight hour film. So I mean, hey, what couldn't they do for films? <laughs> I know. Well, we should probably probably wrap it up there. But before we totally do, camera on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? I am a good. I'm gonna say I'm a good four. The the bosun is about eight and a half percent 
So it is well, not, yeah, it, it'll, it'll get you there for five bucks. Sure. It's a good deal. How about you? I think I might up yet. I think I might be around a five or so. Just uh, okay. yeah, you know, nice straight bourbon. We'll do that to you. At the same level of intoxication that Anna is on any given night when she just starts pumping opium to fall asleep. It could be. Boy, it could be. All right. Well, Matt, uh, what are we reading in our next episode? Hard to believe, but we are actually going to finish up the Kareninning part eight of Anna Karenina. <laughs> I promise it's the last time I will talk about plot lines or farm. Well, not about farming. Or really, probably not the last time I'm talking about plot lines, but it's going to be a good one. It'll yeah. be the conclusion to our Summer of Anna Karenina series. And then we will take a break from novels, and we will go back to some more short stories and whatnot. We've got all that info in our Discord, on our website, so check it out. Absolutely. It, it's been a wild ride, and you might think it's over, but this is Tolstoy. Of course it's not over. It's never over. That's the main challenge of our lives. Plus, now we get, to, we get to reference it when we talk about any other piece of literature because Tolstoy just, his influence <laughs> seeps everywhere. Yeah. 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 Well. <clears throat> Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. <gasps> Getting to the end of my breath there. <laughs> I'm so glad you can still do that in one breath. Just barely, just barely. Uh, podcasting <laughs> isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.